We are picking up with part two of chapter 13. We're talking about application now. How do we establish relevance and legitimacy when it comes to application for the text? Let me briefly go through what we talked about last week. Just a quick overview of our last three chapters. So this chapter is that first step, establishing relevance and legitimacy, assessing the text's applicability to us today. Then next week we'll talk about appropriating the meaning, living out the text teaching in our world. And then the last week of August we'll wrap up our study doing doing theology to outflow of an inductive approach to Scripture. Okay? We talked about three stages when it comes to processing and applying a text. We focused on the first one last week, evaluate the relevance of the text for application in our world today. How do we determine if a passage is relevant to us or if we're, how do we properly apply it? And then today we're going to talk about determining legitimacy by drawing parallels between the interpretation of the text and potential applications, and then articulating teaching points, which are clear, concise statements that summarize what God's Word is teaching at any particular point in Scripture. Okay, So we talked about, when we're talking about establishing relevance and application, again, the hermeneutical triad, we've got to think about history, the cultural relativity of certain passages, like the example we gave was a holy kiss. We can't directly bring that over, or we're going to have a cultural absurdity today, right? So we've talked about equivalence, maybe today's culture, our Western culture, that might be equivalent to a handshake or a hug. So we've got to regard the cultural relativity of a passage to determine its, how relevant its application is. Also, there's situational relativity taken into account. What was the situation at play when that passage was, was taught? We talked about those couple examples in First and Second Timothy and uh, the situations around those. Literature, of course, is part of the hermeneutical triad, so we've got to take into uh, consideration what kind of literature is it. Is it a narrative? Narrative doesn't always mean normative. So just because something happened in Scripture and, the, and Scripture uh, tells us what happened doesn't mean that God is saying, this is what you're supposed to do, right? And we talked about the book of Acts especially. A lot of people today want to say, well, we should be doing everything that they did in the book of Acts. Well, just because it's narrative doesn't mean it's normative. Just because it's descriptive doesn't mean it's prescriptive for us today. So taking all those things into consideration, depending on the type of literature we're in, helps us to rightly apply God's word. And then we talked about regarding theology. We've got to understand where in the text, which covenant do certain commands or certain passages fall under? What, what is the progression of God revealing himself? We've got to take that into consideration to determine if a passage is and, and how we can properly apply it um, because there are things we have to sift through to properly apply it, okay? So that's what we reviewed last week. Today we're going to talk about determining legitimacy and application, okay? And I've got a quote there. Any particular application of the text must be in sync with the interpretation of the text. There must be consistency between interpretation and application, okay? We talked about how so often we want to read a passage and we want to skip the stage of observation and skip the stage of interpretation and go straight to the application. Well, we've got to make sure we have a good foundation, and this is what this study's been about, observing, asking the right questions of the text so that we can then properly interpret the text so that we can then properly apply the passage. So an example is Philippians 4.13. Very familiar verse, you see it on a, in a lot of places. I've seen uh, basketball players with tattoos that say Philippians 4.13. 
Uh, Tim Tebow, back in the day, wore that on his eye black. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let me ask this question. How does this verse often get applied today? How does this verse often get applied today? How do you think, let me ask it this way. What do you think, how do you think Tim Tebow was applying it when he wore it under his eye black? Or those players that have it tattooed on them. How do you think they're applying that verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay. And, but what is the thing that he, he's probably applying it to that he can do? Right. I can win this game. I can defeat the opponent. I can do all those things. Is that what Philippians 4.13 is written for? Is that the proper interpretation? So we could look at the context, and I want to look at another passage this morning, but in Philippians 4, Paul is talking about being content. No matter the circumstances of his life, whether he has plenty, he's content, whether he has little, and he's going through various struggles and trials, he's learned to be content. And then he says, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me, right? So a proper interpretation of understanding this is what Paul intended this passage to mean helps us to properly apply it. Did Paul, when he wrote, wrote, writes those verses, or that verse, and really it's not even a verse as he's writing, he's just writing it as an, an epistle, part of the epistle, did he intend that this could be applied in, to any situation, any circumstance, if it's a football game, if it's you know excelling in your job, is that what he intended? No, and that's, that's again, the proper a- application is going to always go back to what did the author intend to communicate? And then there are various applications we can make from that, right? So the book says this, and I like the way they explain uh, why this is a misapplication. Say, we contend that believers who appropriate this text with an expectation that God will supernaturally supply physical strength and athletic competition are misappropriating Scripture. Paul would never have intended to communicate such a promise, and God is under no obligation to accede to an erroneous expectation, right? Did Tim Tebow ever lose games? Those basketball players with the tattoo, they, they lose games, right? So does that, if they're applying that verse, I can do this, I can win through Christ, and then they lose, again, I don't think probably they have in mind that they're going to win every game. But again, we have to be careful not to misapply God's word. People could say, see, your God didn't help you win that game like you thought that he would, right? So we talked about what Paul was communicating, um, that God will give us strength to find contentment no matter the circumstances. So within that, the confines of that, what are some various ways we can apply Philippians 4.13 appropriately? You think of some ways we can actually apply Philippians 4.13? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So as we think about various ways we could apply that, that idea of contentment, God, uh, God will give me the strength to be content if things are going well in life or if there are trials of various kinds, if there's persecution, if there's financial hardship, whatever it may be, 
and even in abundance, right? That's Paul alludes to that as well. God will give us the power and the ability through Christ to be strengthened, to have contentment, okay? So in order for there to be legitimate application, there has to be parallel connectivity between interpretation and application that link the application back to the proper interpretation, okay? And so I know we're just touching the surface here. We're going to talk about five steps to determining legitimate parallels between interpretation and application, okay? So to determine... Is this parallel with the proper interpretation, this application, or does it go stretch so far that now we're just applying it any way we want and not the way it was intended to be applied, okay? So five steps to this. The first one, discover the way the original author intended his original audience to apply the written text. So what was the intention of the author when he wrote the text, um, so ask the question, how did the author intend the original audience to apply the text? So Paul and Philippians intended them to apply it to whether they had a lot, whether they had a little, they could be content in God. The goal is to understand intended application in the then and there, apart from matters of relevance, prior to determining legitimate parallels to the here and now. We first of all have to look, what did it mean then and there before we get to what does it mean to us here and now, Okay. I'm going to walk through these pretty quickly, but then we're going to take an example passage and walk through these step by step so we can see uh, how we can apply these steps to a passage, okay? So the second one is distinguish between knowing texts and doing texts. So ask the question, does this text primarily relate to the original audience knowing something or doing something, okay? Are we called to know or the original audience, are they called to know something or do something? Simply put, there are some texts that inherently speak to the issue of knowing something, variously called cognitive, declarative, propositional, or informational, and other texts that inherently speak to the matter of doing something, their ethical or practical dimension. Legitimate application in our day will typically follow suit. Okay? So if the, original, uh, if the author originally wanted them to know something, but then we're applying it to doing something, or if it, he wanted them to do something and we apply it to knowing something, then there's probably misapplication. If he wanted them to know something, it's probably key that we're wanting, he, that today we're to apply it to knowing something and vice versa with doing, doing and doing, okay? Number three, distill the underlying principles within the text, okay? So ask the question, what is the core teaching in this text? What is the core teaching in this text? And I like the way the book uh, explains this. Distilling the underlying principle within a given text essentially involves the reader in separating the core message of the text from its historically particular origin. In other words, by removing, or perhaps better, looking beyond the cultural and situational background of the text, you typically find the underlying principle. This is the theological or practical core of what God wanted his people to know or to do. If God wanted his people to do something in the ancient context of Scripture, then the underlying principle will usually suggest that we do something in our own contemporary context. Similarly, if God wanted an ancient audience to know something by divine self-disclosure, then he likely desires all of his people from that point forward to know something about himself through that word. Okay, So what he's saying, again, is let's find that underlying principle. We did this last week when it came to that command to greet one another with a holy kiss. We talked about 
cultural equivalents. And it's easy to just say, well, in that culture, that's how they greeted one another. In our culture, the equivalent would be a hug or a handshake. But let's get to the underlying principle of that, which then we can apply to whatever culture. The underlying principle of the holy kiss we saw was to greet one another in a way that showed an affection, but it was a nonsensual communication of love, right? So if you take that underlying principle, then whatever culture you're in, you can say, what does it, how does this culture demonstrate that sense of affection um, and not crossing the boundary, right? So we're looking for what is the core teaching, strip apart the cultural aspects, the situational aspects, what is at the core that really is a universal principle that can be applied everywhere, okay? So step three, that's what we're doing, is asking what is the core teaching in the text. Number four, determine the appropriate boundaries of what the text can and cannot mean. So what can it and what can it not mean? How far can this underlying principle be stretched in applying it to a new context? Where's the line drawn between an appropriate application and one that loses all sensible connection to the original author and audience? When application is no longer a reflection of the underlying principle, then it has lost its link to legitimacy. Okay, so Philippians 4, 13, the underlying principle, God will help us to be content no matter the circumstances of life. Football doesn't have anything to do with being content, right? Now, maybe you want to apply it with, hey, and maybe, you know, I can't speak to how those athletes want to apply the verse, but maybe they want to say, hey, win or lose, I'm going to be content in Christ. I think that's a better application of that. But so many times it's used as I can do whatever I want to do through the power of of what Christ has given me to do, okay? So determine what it can and cannot mean, the the appropriate boundaries. Number five, develop potential scenarios in which the text can be applied, okay? Ask, in what way can I envision this text being applied today? So after you've done all this work, last step is, how can this verse be applied? Think of some different scenarios of application, okay? So, now we're going to look at an example passage, and we're going to walk back through this and and help to understand uh, how we can apply this verse in this passage and how we can misapply it, okay? So, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, because we're going to look at more than just this verse. Okay, 1 Corinthians 8, and the specific, yes, sure. Uh, I mean, I guess depending on the passage, there might be some hints as to if it was a local type application. Um, But even at the same time, you know, you think, of course, all scripture is given, you know, by inspiration, all scripture is profitable. That doesn't mean it's directly applicable. So there may be an essence where even a local or something that Paul was specifically saying, like we talked about um, 2 Timothy uh, where Paul says to Timothy, you know, bring my cloak, come to me quickly. We can't directly say we need to take cloaks to people and do it quickly. We understand the situation that, that Timothy was in, and that was directly to him. But there might be an underlying principle there of caring for those who, you know, have taught us, caring for those who are uh, in a tough situation 
and, and really, I mean, you can see that throughout Scripture. So even if you didn't directly or try to bring application from that passage, you're not missing out on anything. So, so it's just a ter- determination of, does this directly apply or how can we apply it, okay? 1 Corinthians 8, 1, the second part, verse B, uh, is the main thing we're going to key in on. But again, we're going to see how this verse can be misapplied but also look at the context and see how it can properly be applied. So um, 1 Corinthians 8, 1b says, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay? This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay? Um, let me ask first of all, can you think of any ways, and I think we'll touch on this later too, can you think of any ways people might misapply the, just this part of the verse? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Think of any uh, obvious ways people might misapply that verse. Okay, yep. Yeah, you, if you just read that verse outside of the context, you would almost come away thinking that Paul is saying it's knowledge versus love. And we always should choose love and always say no to knowledge. And so some people could say, you know, you don't need to go to Bible college. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to really study God's word. Just love people. And that's enough, right? Well, let's look at the context and let's start walking through these steps so we can see and we'll clearly see why that's not what is being communicated here. Okay, let me read. uh, Let's read verses one through three. Um, I almost want to read all 13 verses. Let's just do that real quick. Let's read all 13 because I want to see the big picture of what Paul's saying here before we walk through this, okay? So, 1 Corinthians 8, beginning verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, Pretty familiar passage, this idea of food offered to idols. And so we can already see right away, specifically Paul's talking about this knowledge being the knowledge that Idols aren't a real thing, that food offered to them is, there's no spiritual element of there's actually false gods or these, these real gods that exist that are in opposition to Christ. And so 
That's the knowledge he's speaking of specifically, okay? So let's walk through these steps. Discover the way the original author intended his original audience to apply the written text. So how did Paul intend the original audience to apply this passage that we just read? How did Paul intend people at Corinth to apply this verse? Yes. Right. To determine, should they eat meat offered to idols? How should they respond to people who, you know, maybe they have a differing view about that? How do they take this into account? How do they deal with that, okay? The second one, and I think we'll unpack more of this as we go, but I want to get to this. Distinguish between knowing text and doing text. So, does this text, and I want you to be careful, look at it, um, does this text primarily relate to the original audience knowing something or doing something? What would you say? Okay. Anybody disagree? It is a little bit of both, absolutely. And, and I think there's not too many passages where it's just, Know this or do this. We know that knowing affects our doing, right? So sometimes it might be a matter of which one is more focused on. And I think doing is the idea. Of course, they need to know these things, but it, he's calling them to a change in action, right? If they've been partaking in meat offered to idols and not being concerned with their brothers and sisters who have a weak conscience, then he's calling them to change their actions. And again, that begins with a knowledge of what he's laying out here, but it's definitely, I think, more so a doing text. He wants them to do something, to change their behavior when it comes to meat offered to idols. All right? Number three, distill the underlying principle within the text. What is the core teaching? If you had to summarize, what is the key thing that Paul is communicating? This underlying principle, this universal you know, underlying core teaching that then we can take and apply it to our situation in various ways. You nailed it, Ryan. Perfect. Uh, Don't use your liberty as a believer to cause other brothers to stumble, right? That's that's very much, you very well distilled that, stripped it down of the cultural connotation, said, yeah, Christian liberty, your love for your brother should trump your liberties in Christ, right? So the exercise of Christian love must take precedence over the exercise of Christian liberty. Okay, Anybody add anything to that or um, give any different thoughts? I think that you did a really good job just cutting down to the core of the message, right? All right, so number four. Determine the appropriate boundaries of what the text can and cannot mean. Okay? So, how far can this underlying principle be stretched in applying it to a new context? Okay? What, were, what would maybe be the confines you'd put on this passage and how we apply it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So really the confines, we could say, as long as the, the precept, knowledge puffs up but love edifies, is applied to situations in which Christians with a stronger conscience lovingly and willingly limit their exercise of their freedom for the sake of others, then the cord is intact no matter what the issue at hand. So again, it's not stretched too far. There's a picture of parallel. They almost give an illustration of like parallel train tracks. And they've got to, they may be, sometimes you have to, go pretty far because there's such a distinct cultural connotation here, but even though you're going a long distance, that there's a direct link. Other times it's stretched so far it breaks. There's not that connectivity to the, the interpretation, okay? So we talked about ways that this verse can be misapplied. The main one is, you know, we should choose love over knowledge. We don't need to study God's word. We don't need to do that. We just need to love people, um, that, of course, is not in keeping with what Paul intended and what this text, what the underlying principle is, okay? All right, the last one. Develop potential scenarios in which the text can be applied today, okay? So this, this is probably where, hopefully it'll be pretty easy, we'll think of some scenarios here. But, um, again, we've got the underlying principle. Hopefully we've understood how we can misapply it. The underlying principle, again, being that we should not let our liberty cause another brother to stumble. Love should always be above our personal liberties. What are some specific situations that you can think of today where we could apply this passage? There may be several, and, and that's the point. There's, there's one interpretation, but there might be several various ways we apply it, situations. That's the one that comes to my mind, um, and that's a lot of times you hear this passage communicated in that so as believers and there might be some disagreement here um but as believers i'll just say i I believe that nothing in scripture says you can't drink period right drunkenness is the measure of don't be drunk with wine right we're in his excess um so we know there's a clear boundary there so anything short of that and again there there's a lot of subjectivity with that as well um, but is it a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol? I would say, biblically, there's no precedent to say, you drink one sip of alcohol, you're in sin, right? But wh- why would that apply to alcohol? What, how would you flesh that out, this passage? Yeah. Okay, absolutely. So, are there believers who've been saved from a background of alcohol abuse, whether maybe they saw it in their family, maybe they never partook, but they saw uh, the abuse of their parents because they abused alcohol, or maybe they personally have struggled with alcoholism, or maybe even if they don't have a background, maybe they just see what what happens with alcohol abuse, and so they take a hard stance of drinking's wrong. And so, yes, you have that Christian liberty to partake in alcohol, but if you're causing a weaker brother, someone who has seen the abuse of it or experienced that, or maybe they're, again, a recovering alcoholic, they, that's their main sin, and they see you buying alcohol at the store, drinking at a restaurant, whatever, that's where we can apply this, right? I think that's a great application of we need to be careful that we don't allow our liberty, because a lot of people could say, well, look, it's not a sin, and you're wrong because you're drawing a line uh, somewhere else, but... What Paul's saying is we need to take into consideration those who are weaker and not try to cause them to stumble, right? 
Any other ways you can think of this verse being applied? Any other situations? Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a good application, absolutely. So um, trying to be sensitive to how people are handling it, whatever your view of different things are, being sensitive, not just being like, I'm right, you know, I have this liberty, you know, that kind of thing. You're being respectful, trying to care for them and love them. A couple other examples they give in the book, um, and I don't think this is as much an issue probably today as it was years ago, but what about the use of cards? Some people might have a background where they had a gambling background, something like that, and so we just have to be cautious of that. Now, this isn't to say we just throw you know throw all our, our personal liberties out, but it's to be mindful of someone. So maybe you have someone over to your house and you're not sure their response and you were going to play cards or something. Maybe just be mindful of that, and if they say, well, actually, I don't think cards are good, I have this background, that's the time in Christian love to say, well, let's, we'll, we'll play something else or do something else, okay? It might be music as well. I know uh, one of the authors talked about being saved from a rock background, and they went to a restaurant, and that music was playing, and it just reminded him of uh, his pre-conversion days, and so he asked his friend, could we go to another restaurant, and they went somewhere else, and again, it was that same kind of music, so they went to a third restaurant, so the friend of his was being very gracious and recognizing that this was a stumbling block to him, hearing this kind of music. So it's just, again, the underlying principle, don't allow your liberties to cause you to be unloving and cause a weaker brother to be offended, right? Always allow love to trump your personal liberty, okay? All right, so the next aspect as we wrap up, after we've done this, after we've tried to appropriately understand how can we apply it, how is it misapplied, all these steps to determining relevancy, develop teaching points and application. Okay, Teaching points are clear, concise statements that summarize what God's Word is teaching us at any particular point in Scripture. They reflect the underlying principles in, the, in a text, extending the timeless and transcendent principle to our current context. Our goal is, therefore, to develop sensible teaching points that accurately reflect an eternally relevant and exegetically legitimate application of Scripture. Okay, So as we're walking through passages and as we get to that stage of application, this can be a helpful tool of actually writing out teaching points. Okay, So the three ones are you know, basically three steps we could say developing these. First of all, interpretation. We want to make sure we accurately interpret what the passage says. Okay, so the example they give in this passage of a teaching point focused on interpretation, it says, don't allow your knowledge that food offered up to idols is nothing to become a stumbling block for those who don't have such knowledge. Rather, cautiously limit the exercise of your freedom by not eating food that may have been offered up to idols. To limit one's freedom requires humility, and restraint is an act of humility. But by limiting your freedom, you demonstrate love for your brother building him up rather than tearing him down, such is the way of Christ. So this is the interpretation of that culture, that text. This is exactly what Paul was saying to the original audience. The next one is what we've talked about before. Then from that, develop the underlying principle. They, they give this example. Within the community of the church, and in reference to disputable matters, believers who have the freedom of conscience to participate in certain activities ought to consider first 
the effect this may have on their brothers and sisters who don't have the same freedom of conscience. If the exercise of Christian liberty, whether in reference to food, drink, entertainment, associations, affiliations, or anything else, results in another person stumbling into sin, then the loving thing to do is to refrain from the exercise of one's freedom for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. So that's kind of lengthy, but they're trying to communicate that underlying principle. Then we come to a contextualized teaching point. And this is, uh, the way they describe this, a contextualized teaching point often requires a specific real-world situation. So once we've got, this is the way it was originally to be interpreted, this is the underlying principle, now we plug in our various uh, applications. So if we have a real-life situation, for instance, like we said, alcohol, here's how we're going to apply this principle to the issue of alcohol and consumption there, okay? He gives another great example. I want to just read this because I thought this was really good just to get us thinking a little bit outside the box and to just to see how this can be applied in various situations um, and, and we could develop a teaching point based on it. So he tells the story about going to uh, Turkey, taking a trip to Turkey, and he says, as our group tour or as our tour group visited sites such as Pergamum, Laodicea, and Ephesus, we were often greeted in gift shops with Turkish charms and pendants, the most common of which was the blue evil eye. So they're in, these, they're in Turkey, they're in these villages, and they see this little pendant called the blue evil eye. Based in centuries-old superstition, the talisman uh, is shaped like a circle. It's blue on the outside, has the image of an eye in the middle. It is said to ward off evil, but for some in our group, the talisman was simply a representation of evil. So you can imagine seeing this blue eye of evil. For some people, they'd be like, that's kind of creepy. That seems very evil in and of itself. So then he said, um, others, however, were quick to purchase these as souvenirs, looking to bring a bit of Turkish culture home. At least one person in the group was quite offended at how others regarded these tel- uh, talismans so lightly. Perhaps we might consider the example as just one more manifestation of a disputable matter, which for some believers is a cause for stumbling, while others have knowledge that such talisman souvenirs are nothing. To apply the teaching point to this context, to this specific situation, we might suggest that those who have the knowledge that the blue evil eye is nothing refrain from purchasing them as souvenirs, knowing that the practice of such a liberty might cause others to stumble. Doing so is a manifestation of selfless love, knowing that the edification of others trumps the right to practice, uh, right practice to one's own liberty. Okay, so here's a specific situation. You see a brother who's kind of offended or caused to stumble because of this uh, pendant, and so to apply this in that situation, maybe it's best to not buy that so as to not cause someone to stumble. Right. Any questions or thoughts before we wrap up on anything we've covered today? Any added, added things? I think I've got one more slide. Um, so just in conclusion, they say, appropriating an ancient, situational, and literary, literarily diverse book of divine revelation to a contemporary context requires careful analysis. We always ought to have a good reason for why we apply Scripture in one particular way or another. Haphazard thinking at the investigative level of application will result in the misappropriation of God's word at the personal devotional level. However, there's nothing haphazard when following a methodical 
inductive approach to Bible study. Through the evaluation of relevance, the determination of legitimacy, and the development of teaching points, any segment of Scripture can speak with clarity and precision as the Word of God to the people of God today. Okay, So even if we're not, we're not formally sitting down and writing this out step by step, these are things to be keeping in mind even as we're devotionally reading God's Word um, and seeking to observe the text, interpret the text, and then apply it correctly and not just pulling a verse and, okay, I think it could mean this, and applying it haphazardly. Okay. Any, uh, any other questions or thoughts? All right, we'll close in prayer and then move on to our service.